Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Well, hello. I, I'm just happy as hell to have Barbara here on stage with me. She's, uh, I, I don't know how many of you read the book, but I did read it. Uh, and she looks like a, 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 a kind, unassuming uh, woman, and she's got a spine of steel. Uh, <laughs> it's done amazing work that you're going to be hearing about. Um, as Dan said, I'm, uh, uh, I am a longtime reporter at the Chronicle. I cover crime and I've got a book coming out called the lost and the found. It's about some homeless folks that I've helped get off the street over the years, but this is the book we're talking about tonight. Um, uh, Barbara is a retired patent attorney, genetic genealogist, biochemist, uh, formerly retired person, now very busy doing DNA research for law enforcement. And this book, in case you missed the title, is I Know Who You Are, How an Amateur DNA Sleuth Unmasked the Golden State Killer and Changed Crime Fighting Forever. And believe me, having covered a ton of serial killers and murder cases, this one was super hard to untangle. I heard about it for many years before it finally got cracked, and she's the reason it got cracked. Uh, it's very impressive. In this book, she explores investigations into cases such as the Bear Brook murders, which you may have heard of. Had, there was a podcast that got a lot of airplay. The Golden State Killer, of course, and the Clearfield Rapist. Uh, in this, this uh, manuscript, uh, Barbara recounts how DNA analysis and genealogy records helped her unmask notorious killers and solve cases which had been dormant for decades. Cold cases, we call them. It's a gripping book that explores firsthand how a case unfolds and illustrates how genealogy has revolutionized the nature of investigations. And it truly is, and she's the pioneer of it. Now, a reminder to our audience, if you're here with us in San Francisco and have a question for Barbara, please write it on the question cards near your seats. And if you're watching along with us online, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube. We'll be getting to audience questions later in the program. Thank you, Barbara, for joining us tonight. Well, thank you for having me. Yes. Now, um, I'm going to ask a couple of questions to prompt things, but it's almost like I got to stick a quarter in you and you're going to go like a jukebox because <laughs> you've got lots to say. Now, I've got some prepared questions. You received your PhD in biology from, the UC, from UC San Diego. What sparked your interest in genealogy and biology? that led you to all this? Well, what led me to all of this actually had nothing to do with that so much as um, just pure happenstance. Mm. So um, what happened was I retired in 2005, and so I was playing some tennis, doing some traveling, and working on my family history research. And I have a rather unusual uh, ancestral trail to try and follow, on my paternal side, my relatives were part of a very large group of Scottish Highlanders who relocated from the north of Scotland uh, as a result of the Scottish clearances, first to Nova Scotia and then three decades later to New Zealand. And they unfortunately uh, lived in places where there were not a lot of paper records. So trying to follow a paper trail is very difficult. So in 2007 is when autosomal DNA testing became available. So autosomal DNA, for those of you who remember your biology, <laughs> is chromosomes 1 through 22. And using that, you can identify relatives back probably around five or six generations. And so I started, uh, I managed to convince a lot of my relatives to test. And so using that, uh, I was then able to start building some trees back to Nova Scotia, and then occasionally back to Scotland. Uh, but that's sort of how I got started with stuff. Um, and what happened is a lot of people that I was matching with were adoptees who were trying to identify their birth relatives. Mm. And I had absolutely no idea how to help them. So I went online, found a class um, with a group called DNA Adoption, and I started volunteering with them. And that's sort of what got me into all of this stuff. This is the kind of thing just a scientist would follow because most people would just do their own families, but you expanded it to helping other people. Right. 
Uh, isn't that an angel researcher or something along those lines? You call it a search angel, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a uh, well becoming. Before you did that, before you be, became an amateur investigator, you were a patent attorney. Uh, this is quite the pivot. Uh, <laughs> did working as a patent attorney shape in any way your work as an investigator? Uh, is there kind of some kind of overlap between that and, and what you do in terms of looking through DNA and genealogy? Not, not for, say, the science, but I think it's a way of thinking uh, because to get a patent, you have to come up with something that is new and spiffy. And so that's a, a, a legal term. Um, and so you have to be have to know enough in a lot of different fields so that when you're meeting with inventors who are in different things like genetics, molecular biology, you know, whatever, that you can ask the right questions to help them enlarge upon their original thought. So most most inventors, they sort of have tunnel vision as to what their what the widget is that they've mm. invented. And so what I need to do is be able to say, well, you know, could you use it for X? Could you use it for Y? Um, is there another way to make it um, or another way to use it? And so um, you, you have to be good at, at making connections that aren't, aren't obvious, I guess. Yeah. And so that's what you also end up doing, of course, when you're doing genetic genealogy. You're trying to connect dots which don't necessarily look like they should connect. Yeah. You come to th you know, as a patent attorney, did you have any cool patents that we might have heard of, like the slinky or God knows what? <laughs> well, one of the ones that that uh, was probably most fun was the flavor saver tomato. Uh, um, so this was so I did a number of cases for what was a little biotech company called Calgene up in Davis. Yeah. And <clears throat> so um, the flavor saver tomato was kind of interesting technology. What it was, was it was called anti-sense technology. So you were blocking production of the enzyme that causes the skin of the fruit to, to rot. And so if you can block that, you're going to have a tomato with longer shelf life. Oh. Oh. So if you have a tomato with longer shelf life, then you can pick it when it's ripe instead of when it's green. Did um, you have to taste these things before oh, you... Oh, they were uh... great. They really were. Yeah, it yep. worked. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> well, there's, a, there's a, unfortunately there's a sad story that goes along with it. So, um, the, after we had gotten the patent for it, um, the they set up a company called Calfresh, and the guy that they hired to be the CEO of Calfresh yeah. was from Chicago, yeah. and so he decided that Calfresh should be head, headquartered in Chicago instead of in California. Really? So, so they had contracts with lots of California farmers and farmers all over the country to grow tomatoes. And then they realized that this was technically a genetically modified fruit. And was that okay in different states and not okay in different states? It wasn't okay anywhere in the U.S. Ah, so uh, the, the, the farmers basically tore up their contracts and refused to grow tomatoes. So the following year, they contracted with a number of farmers in Mexico. And so um, everything went well. They grew the tomatoes. Uh, the tomatoes ripened, they put them in trucks to go to Chicago, but they forgot something. What did they forget? They forgot that these were not green tomatoes, they were ripe tomatoes. Oh, it's so And by happened? the time they got to Chicago, there was so much tomato paste coming out of the back of the trucks. Oh, <laughs> I'll bet that smelled great too, huh? <laughs> ah! So much for the flavor saver. So much for the flavor saver. Oh, God. Uh, well, Going from that into into your family history and the genealogy, how did how did doing that gridding out the the, the, the pathways for your own uh, ancestry? How did that lead you into um, doing the Golden State Killer? Because that's the case that people right. have heard the most of. How, how did that happen? So the the first case that I worked on was a case called the Lisa Jensen case. That's actually a fascinating case in itself. Yeah, right. So um, while I was so I became a, a search angel at DNA Adoption, and uh, one of the things, in addition to helping teach their classes, I also answered the webmail. Mm. And there was a an email came in from a deputy Peter Headley in San Bernardino, California, uh, from the uh, uh, Crimes Against Children detail. Mm. 
And so he had a case that he'd been working on of a woman who's now in her 30s, but she had been abducted when she was six months old. Yeah. And so she, of course, had no idea who she was, where she was from. I mean, can you imagine being in your 30s? You have no birthday, you have no name, you have nothing. And so um, he wanted to know if this technique that we were teaching to adoptees, could that possibly be used to identify who she was? And I said, well, sure. Um, it would be difficult because basically all we have, of course, is her DNA. Yeah. We don't have, and if, if you're working with an adoptee, you've normally got a birthplace, you've got a birth date, you've got some information. For her, we had nothing. Right. Um, and to top it off, the uh, guy that had abducted her, uh, the police knew that he had been literally all over the U.S. around the time period she'd been abducted and also up into Quebec and Canada. So we didn't even know whether she was Canadian or American. Yeah, and he wasn't even as, he used a couple aliases too, right? Uh, he used about 14 aliases. Yeah. <laughs> so, so um, managed to, so to solve who she was. And of course, this was not, this ended up not being like your normal unknown parentage search. Mm. Um, so we identified who her mother was. It was a woman called Denise Bodan. And she was from Manchester, New Hampshire. And I'd also identified five brothers, one of whom was potentially Lisa's mother. So it turned out that her grandfather, though, was still alive. Mm. And so we asked the grandfather, so who was Lisa's father? And he said, Bob Evans. Well, Bob Evans was not one of the names that I'd come up with. So on a hunch, the deputy in San Bernardino sent a picture of the guy who had abducted Lisa to the grandfather. Yes, that's Bob Evans, he said. Uh -huh. So suddenly we knew how he'd gotten a hold of her. He'd been her mother's live-in boyfriend. Interesting, yeah. Now this, this gets into how uh, for for anyone who's not really familiar with DNA, then it's really hard to become super familiar with. Just the, why don't you just give a thumbnail of what you do? Because everyone hears that you can solve a case through DNA, but it's not quite that just simple, is it? What do you, how did how do you take a DNA sample from someone like Lisa and match that to people? In in just a nutshell. So and and of course when we started with Lisa was. Um, there, there were not a lot of tools available, mm. um, but so you do. You take you just take whoever your unknown person is. You take their DNA. Um, it gets extracted. So you've either you know if for those of you who've done DNA testing, you spat in a tube or you did a, a cheek swab, um, and so that's what we do then for unknown parentage cases. That DNA is then taken and it's compared against a database of other people who've also uh, tested. And then there's an algorithm that is run, which looks for people that share DNA. Um, you get a printout then of how closely those people are related to you. And this is just based on the amount of shared DNA. And then from there, what you do is you build family trees. You're looking for people who are related. Ideally, you want somebody who's maybe a second cousin or better. Uh, second cousins share a set of great-grandparents. So what you do when you're building the trees for the matches, you're looking for matches that then share some ancestors. So in this case, let's say they're second cousins, you're looking for the shared set of great-grandparents. So now what you do is if you've now got somebody who is an unknown and all three of those people are matching each other on the DNA, they're matching on the same segment of DNA even, um, what you know about the person who's the unknown, if you know that these two, two people are each descendants of that set of great-grandparents, what do you know about the unknown person? You know that they too must be a descendant of that set of great-grandparents. Mm. So what you then do is you turn around and you build what's called a reverse tree, which is a lot more difficult to do. Mm. Um, and so you then build down and you look for all of the descendants of that couple that, that you identified as the common ancestors. And then you look amongst them to see if they, any of them fit the characteristics of the person you're looking for. So for the Golden State Killer, um, his first uh, known uh, rape was in 1976. So you figure he's probably born in 1956 or better. He was active in Northern California, probably lives in Northern California. Now, Just, back to 1956 or better, because you have to be about what, well, we figure late teenage, at least 20, 20 early yeah, 20s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, and then you, you go through. So when we did that, 
Um, we lucked out. It turns out that the family that we were looking at were primarily in New York. It was just one branch of the family that had moved to California. And so looking at that branch of the family, we were actually down to nine potential men. And nine. And then and then what did... Let's, I was going to get to the Golden State Hill a little later, but this is great. What did you do with the nine men to, to try and narrow it down? So um, what we did then is... is Paul Holes, who was the longtime detective on this case, um, he had a theory about who the Golden State Killer was. Uh-huh. Um, many of the early rapes in Citrus Heights in Sacramento had, had been in new housing developments. And so Paul was fairly convinced that the person was probably had something to do with real estate. Maybe a developer, maybe a landowner, maybe a realtor, or maybe even somebody in construction. And so amongst those nine men, there happened to be one man who fit that profile. (laughs) And so um, what we did is we ended up approaching a close relative who agreed to do a consensual DNA test. Mm. So we could then see how close this person was. Um, And she turned out to be a second cousin. Um, And she also had a very big X chromosome match. And men only have one X chromosome, and so they inherited that from their mother. And so now we knew that was the the mother's line that we were looking at. And I was also able to then eliminate three men who couldn't possibly have that relationship with Mm. this woman we'd tested. So now we were down to six. And then what did you do with the six? So one of the other things that I had done is there was a tool on one of the databases that we used called JetMatch that could be used to estimate eye color. And it came back with uh, that he had blue eyes. And then there was a second uh, site that I used called Prometheus, which you can use to get all kinds of phenotypic information. And it also said he had blue eyes. So the FBI then took the six names that we had. They pulled the California driver's license records. Only one had blue eyes. Ah. And one of the advantages in this case is you had a lot of living witnesses who right. could describe the color of the eyes and, and so right. forth. How many victims did the Golden State Killer have and what time span are we talking about for his crime? So we're talking about, of known, of known offenses, 12 years. Um, there were over 100 break-ins and burglaries. There were over 50 rapes and there were 13 homicides. 15 homicides. And this spread from, what, from around Sacramento on down to, what was the geography of it again? So he started out in Citrus Heights in Sacramento. Mm-hmm. Um, then he went down towards Walnut Creek, Pleasanton area, and then he also came down towards San Jose. Yeah, and he was a police officer at one point. He was a police officer in Auburn, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so once you got these, once you narrowed it down to these six, uh, and the cops got it down to the one, how did you, what was the final tightening of the noose on that one? So when we got down to the the one person with the blue eyes. So then what happened is it turned out that actually law enforcement had some other information that I didn't have. There'd been um, some information, there'd been a thing called Snapshot that was run by another company. And in that, they had, they had concluded that he had green eyes and had ruled out blue. Mm. I didn't have that information. So I'm really... How did they I'm, conclude that when they had victim, witness, uh, victim accounts of this? I don't know. Yeah, carry on. So, when, so when, yes. well, well, it was kind of interesting because I got a strange phone call the following morning. I sent an email to, to Steve Kramer, the FBI guy I was working with, and Paul Holes, and said, you know, it's, De- it's D'Angelo. And I get this phone call from Steve, and it's when he goes, how sure are you? And I thought, well, that's kind of weird. He's got the same stuff that I do. But it turned out they didn't have the same stuff that I do. Right. They had that he had green eyes. Boy, that's it. it Proof that... And law enforcement investigations is not fail safe, <laughs> not robots. So, so anyway, no, nobody, of course, takes my word for it at that point. Mm. Then what they do is they then put whoever, and this is in all of the cases, they then put whoever the suspect is under surveillance. In his case, what they did is they followed him to a shopping mall, and when he went inside, they swapped his car door handle. So then they took that DNA and compared it against the crime scene DNA. Mm. And it was a gazillion to one that it could be anybody else. Yeah. And uh, they also then got a, just to make sure, <laughs> a gazillion to one wasn't enough. Um, they then got a tissue out of his trash. And after he put it at the, the curb and same thing, it was a gazillion to one. It could be mm. anybody else. So he then got arrested. But the thing is that the, the DNA is just one 
one component of building a case, isn't it? And and I thought that I found it interesting in your book how you described how, you know, you had a good relationship with with uh, Paul Holes and mm -hmm. the other investigators, but they couldn't and wouldn't share all that they knew with you. So you were kind of working with half a hand tied behind your back. So, well, I'm I'm not law enforcement. I mean, I'm mm. an attorney, but I'm not law enforcement. Yeah. And it, it really depends on the individuals. Um, some some law enforcement will share more with me than others. Yeah. Um, others, um, particularly when you get down to the point of actually identifying a suspect, and you know, this is this was high stakes. Yeah. You know, obviously, I'm not going to go out and blab who he is, um, but. You know, who knows? Maybe there's somebody that would. Did they swear you to secrecy or make no. you sign something or no. say don't do it? How, how did they know you weren't going to go on, you know, <laughs> CNN and blurt this out? Well, I guess they had to. Well, I mean, at that point, it's just me that's saying it. You know, it's it's after they've done the confirmatory stuff that, that it's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, it's important to keep, keep closed lips when you're working on a case like that. Right. And, how many cases it how many cases do you think you've worked on since you began with the Lisa project? So we've probably so I have a group called Firebird Forensics and we've probably now solved about sixty cases. Um a lot of them we, I don't know exactly because a lot of them have not been confirmed yet. Yeah. Um things have really slowed down over the pandemic and um, a lot of agencies are really short on personnel to actually do stuff. And it takes a lot to do it because you have to put somebody under surveillance that takes a team. Um, so it can be quite, quite, you know, a lot of manpower involved. Does your team do the surveillance or do you work oh, no, in no, conjunction no, with no, law no, enforcement? No, no, no. Okay, good. All we do is IGG. So you're not skulking behind someone's house <laughs> with binoculars, right? No, we just talk people on the internet. Okay. <laughs> That's safer. Yeah. <laughs> um, has since 2015 is when you began. Is that correct? 2000, uh, 2000 and yeah, 15. Yeah. Have Have you changed what you do since then, or or have you? I imagine you have. So how have you changed what you how you approach a case since that time? Well, the, we haven't so much changed what we do as embraced new tools as they became available. So when we started out, there was very little that was available for helping actually sort things out. Now there's just all kinds of wonderful tools out there. So we very much embrace the new technology that comes along. What kind of tools? So um, an example of one is it's a tool, it's on a site called DNA Painter. Um, and it's called What Are the Odds or Watto. Really? And so what, what you're able to do is you upload the tree that you've built and then it, you're, there, what you're able to do then is input the amount of matching DNA people in the tree have with your suspect or your unknown person. And it will then calculate the odds of where in the tree that person belongs. And the tree is the potential connective people? So, right? yeah, so, it's the, so you've taken, say we've got three matches. You've got yeah. Fred Smith and Bob Brown and whoever else, and you've built the trees out for them, and then you've connected them um, where they've got you know, common ancestors, or you've maybe got a, a marriage connecting them. Mm. And so, yeah, so then it, what it does is that it then calculates the odds that the, that the person you're trying to identify is a descendant of whatever line. So uh, just, it's huge. I mean, it just makes it so much easier to figure out what, what's going on. It takes a very logical mind. You probably were pretty good at math. Yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As journalists, we'd probably have a hard time with some <laughs> terrible event. Uh, tell us a little bit about the Bear Brook murders, because out, out here, this was back east, out here, and not as many people know, if you haven't listened to the podcast uh, or read this particular book, but that's a fascinating case. T just just give it a little thumbnail of what happened there. Okay, so the, so the Bear Brook murders were actually how I ended up getting to work on the Golden State Killer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've been kind of jumping around here. <laughs> okay. um, so... As I started to say, um, identifying Lisa's parents was not your typical unknown parentage case where you identify the parents and that's sort of, you know, you confirm that and then you go on to your next case. So in this case, we're, we're finding out that, that the guy that abducted Lisa was, was in fact her abductor. 
This was actually a fellow who'd gone to prison here in California for murdering his common-law wife, Unson Jun, up in Contra Costa County. And there were some similarities in the MO for that case and how four people were murdered in Allenstown, New Hampshire. And Allenstown, New Hampshire is about 20 minutes from Manchester, New Hampshire, which is where this took he was living, was Lisa's mother. Mm. So in the case of Unson Jun, she'd been killed by blunt force trauma. She'd been dismembered, wrapped in plastic, tied with electrical tape, and then in her case, buried under 200 pounds of kitty litter in the basement of her home. The people in New Hampshire, there were, was an adult female and three little girls. So the adult female and the eldest child had been killed by blunt force trauma, dismembered, wrapped in plastic, tied with electrical tape, and in their case, stuffed inside of a, a steel drum. They were discovered in 1985. In 2000, another steel drum containing the bodies of two little girls was, were discovered also in the same place, Bearbrook Park. In their case, again, killed by blunt force trauma, wrapped in plastic, tied in electrical tape, and then stuffed inside the steel drum. Mm -hmm. So this guy, Bob Evans, had he was an electrician, and he had actually worked for the company whose owner actually owned the property in Bearbrook Park where these steel drums had been found. They also used steel drums. And Lisa's mother, Denise Bodin, worked for the cable company that made the cable that had been tied, used to tie up the bodies. So the New Hampshire State Police started sort of following all these breadcrumbs and decided he was actually the murderer of the Allenstown Four. Hmm. Yeah. And there is a, a very, very good podcast by a guy called Jason Moon from New Hampshire on, on uh, this. I think it's like six part series. It's very good. Yeah. 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 I, I heard, heard a lot of it. The, um, so how did that hopscotch you over to the Golden State Killer? So there, there was a commonality uh, for the two cases um, in, in the Unson June was murdered in Contra Costa County. Paul Halls was in Contra Costa County. Mm -hmm. And so there was the connection with the Lisa case with Contra Costa County. And Deputy Headley, uh, who was the detective from San Bernardino, he was so excited that we'd solved the Lisa case. He was telling absolutely everybody. And so he told Paul Halls that, hey, we've solved the Lisa case. And so next thing I know, Paul Halls is calling me wanting to know if I could use that same technique to... Uh, help him with one of his cold cases. He didn't say which one at the time, but uh. I said, sure, technique should work. Um, and so it turned out to be the Golden State Killer. So what was your first step in there and before you learned that they, who they were looking for? Well, there wasn't anything really to do. Um, yeah. It was just a case of, you know, we needed to get some DNA and that turned out to actually be quite a, a challenge. That's right. Yeah, how did you, it, tell, tell a little bit, because this kind of, this happens quite a bit. Evidence goes missing or people hold on to their evidence or they protect it. What was the trouble? How come you, they, he had so many victims? How come we couldn't just go to a shelf and grab the, you know, the one of the kits and, and start working? Well, the, the case was 42 years old. And as new technology had become available over the years, of course, you know, the various jurisdictions would pull out some of their their samples and they would use that to try the new technology. So here we were again with new technology. Um, in Paul's case, there had been three rapes in Contra Costa County, but he'd run out of, he didn't have anything he'd run, left. He'd used up the DNA already right. with earlier tests? Right. Okay. So the the next, next county with probably the most uh, DNA was Orange County. Um, Orange County decided they didn't want to share. Um, and what, what, yeah, cause I, I've, I've saw that I've run into that in some things I've written about. Why didn't they want to share? What was their, what was their reasoning? I, I have, I have no idea. I was not involved in that. All I know is that, uh, when Paul called them, they basically just said no. Mm. So then, uh, he and Steve got on the, on the phone again and called, you know, cause there were nine counties that there had been rapes in. Yeah. And so theoretically, yeah, there should have been some DNA available someplace. But we actually lucked out. So one of the phone calls was to Ventura County. And Ventura County had an interesting medical examiner. He had his own special way of doing rape kits. 
And what he did is he actually would go to the scene of the crime and he would take not one sample, but two. He would do tests on one sample, the other sample he would freeze and never do anything with it. Yeah. So when we call Ventura, they actually were not aware of us because the, the, the uh, Emmy was a Dr. Peter Speth and he had retired. And so they were actually busy cleaning out their freezer and they have actually found this, this intact rape kit sitting in the bottom of the freezer. Were they going to throw this stuff they, away? They were getting ready to throw stuff out. Really? And so um, they, you know, when, when uh, Steve called, called Ventura, they said, well, you know, let's check and see if we've got anything. So, of course, they come back. They're totally surprised. They found this, this rape kit that's been sitting in the freezer for 38 years. Jeez. And that's got really good usable DNA, doesn't it? Yeah, it hasn't been thawed. Nothing's been done to it. Yeah. So, um, in a way, we lucked out that others were not willing to share. And that was that was the key to to doing all the we, matching. Yeah, because we got wonderful DNA out of that, and we're able to uh, go forward from there. Jeez. And, and now, one thing I I hope everyone understands that one reason this this research is so possible, so many people have put their DNA into databases. Yes. And and also in the criminal records too. If you go to prison, uh, uh, sometimes if you get arrested on a serious case, your DNA gets taken and entered into a database too. Uh, theoretically, yeah, there are people that get most. So in California, theoretically, if you're arrested on on a it's a felony arrest, then yeah, they'll take your DNA. Mm. Um, but people sleep slip through the cracks. So in, anybody who is interested in helping law enforcement, if you've either already done DNA, D, DNA testing or you'd be willing to help law enforcement, you can test at any of the testing companies. All you need to do is then take your DNA profile when you get it, download it from wherever you tested, and upload it to one of two sites, either uh, a site called GEDmatch, which is G-E-D-M-A-T-C-H, or Family Tree DNA. And those are the two databases that we can use for uploading forensic files. So this is for uh, identifying suspects in violent crimes or uh, unidentified remains, identifying those. Yeah, and this is something you talk about in your book, too. The, uh, after there was so much publicity on the Golden State Killer case uh, being nailed with DNA, uh, uh, some people brought out these concerns that, you know, it's an invasion of privacy. And if I lo upload my DNA... Maybe I'll find out my cousin is an axe murderer in <laughs> Montana or something. Hey, should people be concerned about giving their DNA uh, to the world like this? Quite honestly, if you've got, if you're white and you're of either Western or Northern European ancestry, the horse already left the barn a long time ago. That's an <laughs> that is an interesting. Yes, I don't think a lot of people know that. <laughs> In terms of the the available uh, DNA databases, I thought that was fascinating. It's tell, tell us a little bit about the racial breakdown, about how that uh, the availability of what's out there now. So, as you probably noticed in when you are reading about some of the arrests that are made in some of these cases, for lack of a better term, I'll say we're arresting a lot of old white guys. Old white guys, and that's because yeah. that's who's in the database. Um, the databases are they're about eighty percent white. Um, and so if you're dealing with a suspect or unidentified remains, which are non-white, uh, they're a lot more difficult. There's fewer people in the database, so you're going to get fewer matches, and you're probably going to get smaller matches. Um, so it makes it a lot more difficult. Now, it's interesting because the arrests uh, are often disproportionate uh, for people of color. Uh, how, why is it so out of whack? Just because... You know, historically, it's been um, upper middle class white people who have been DNA testing. Mm. I mean, that's changing as the cost has come down. But um, even so, it's it's very much still white folks who are who are interested in doing their genealogy. Of course, if you're a black person, it's very difficult to do genealogy. And that's sort of something we run into. Um, I'm working on a series of sexual assault kids, kits out of Cuyahoga County in Ohio. Yeah. Um, eighty percent of those kits are the suspect is black, and so if you don't get very good matches and you're having to go back build the trees back in time, what you end up doing is running into slavery, and of course at that point you're brick walled. Can you trace white people back beyond slavery? I mean that. It, oh, that's yeah. that's really 
You're talking about some really old DNA. If, if, you've, if you've got, if you're somebody whose ancestors have been in this country for a long time, um, or as I said earlier, if, if it's Northern or Western European ancestry, oh yeah, you can go back. I've got one of my lines back to 1000 AD. Oh my God. So, and then the reason it's, it's kind of capped for black people who were enslaved in the because 1800s the, the, and going back is because the records were so crummy and right. no names. And, and even the records that are there are pretty horrible. God, that's an even, that's another layer of horror about the whole damn experience of that, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Boy, so, well, um, in Chapter 9, you recall working with uh, your uh, investigator partner, uh, Deputy Peter Headley. And what are the limitations or advantages of contributing to an investigation as a private citizen? Well, I personally feel a sense of accomplishment, being able to... Mm to help with some of these cases. Um, and we don't normally tell people that they're what we call genetic witnesses. Um, sometimes if we've asked people to do consensual samples, we'll, um, to thank them for doing that, we'll share the tree that we've built and we'll, we will tell them that, you know, they've assisted in solving a case. And that's, people are usually pretty stoked when, they, when they're able to do that. Now, a lot of people, a lot of true crime fans, mm -hmm. like considering themselves mini detectives or doing research and so forth. How uh, how uh, possible is it to become uh, an actual aide to law enforcement instead of just someone who's sending in stuff that's being irritating? <laughs> <laughs> What kind of a role do you mean? Is in yeah, I did. It's how would how much how vigorously would you recommend your you know fellow citizens to try to become amateur detectives? You mean doing what I'm doing, or or yeah, or doing what I think doing what web, you're doing being a web sleuth. Yeah, what you're doing is more effective than a lot of uh, uh, law enforcement gets a lot of tips from people who mm -hmm. spend a lot of time trying to figure things out. Yours is more scientific. Um, are there a lot of scientists out there that can contribute and become, you know, private detectives like this? So it, de it depends, on, I guess, on your motivation. Um, you need what? So there are two components. There's the big component, of course, is being able to do family history research. Mm. But not only the family history research, but um, what we recommend to people is that they volunteer with a group that does, that helps adoptees. Because the tricky part is once you've identified those common ancestors and you're doing the reverse tree, that's the hard part because you're, you're dealing with living people at some point because you're trying to build down to when the person you're looking for was born. And there are limited tools available to those of us who are not in law enforcement for finding people who are living people. Yeah. So uh, things like obituaries, um, Facebook is great. Um, I mean, I've built entire trees of stuff that's on Facebook. Yeah, it's um, interesting. <laughs> and Facebook generally these days involves older people. Uh, so for uh, what I'm doing, it's perfect, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, of course, there are other sites like, and these are all, unfortunately, you have to pay for them, are things like Being Verified, Spokio, Truth Finders. Um, there's a whole bunch of those kinds of sites. Are they useful? Yes, because... Uh, if you pay for them. You have to pay for them um, because a lot of times, both on GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA, the person is only, they've used an alias, mm -hmm. but they've got their email address there. And so you can do a reverse lookup on the email address. Right. So this is, I guess that's what I was trying to get at. This is kind of like your uh, police academy training <laughs> on a private, <laughs> private level. Because uh, 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 if you're going to do this kind of work, it is very serious work. It's not yeah. just... You know, working out a few sketches on your kitchen table. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Yeah. Now, in section three of the novel, you talk about how you help pioneer the investigative genetic genealogy, IgG, which is a, a an abbreviation I think a lot of people wouldn't be familiar with. Uh, how is IgG changing the future of investigations today? It's a lot more specific. So the so the DNA tools prior to IgG for law enforcement were things like CODIS. So CODIS is the mm -hmm. database that was set up by the FBI 
it uses a different kind of DNA. It uses what are called short tandem repeats. Um, and so in order to protect privacy, um, and there were a lot of arguments about having this database, mm-hmm. um, you can only do a one-to-one lookup. So when you've got, you've got a criminal, that's somebody that's been arrested, um, you do their STRs, and then that's compared with the, the CODIS database. You're looking for an exact match. You can't, yeah. you can't look for anything else. There are 13 states which allow what's called a familial search. The familial search will allow you to look for what are called first-degree relatives, so parents, children, siblings. And you have to jump through all kinds of hoops in order to be able to run a, a familial search. So that was what was available before IgG. And so what with IgG, we can actually hone in on either a specific individual or sometimes we'll end up with, with brothers or very rarely with, with first cousins. Um, and I say brothers just because most of the, the suspects are in fact male. Mm. Yeah, most, crim- most serious criminals mm-hmm. are. Yeah. One, one more question before we get to audience questions. How do these families respond when you, when you solve this? And do you get to talk to the families whose murder cases you've helped close? Um, I've, I've met, so with the Golden State Killer, I've actually met some of the victims from the rapes. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I don't normally get to meet people. Um, for unknown parentage cases, yes, I've, in, that, in, in those situations, I've met people. Um, and in fact, I have one of my unknown parentage people is here tonight. Um, he was actually somebody that we identified and helped find his birth parents um, in the Lisa Jensen case. Would so you like is, to uh, stand is, up and talk? Is, is Adam, are you here somewhere? There he is. <laughs> Just tell us real briefly, what did you do for Adam? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Sure, why not? Come on up. So, so Adam was a close relative to Lisa Jensen. Ah, and come on so, up here, Lynn. Yeah. Uh, I, so I think, Adam, you were a third cousin, is that correct? Yeah. Yes, correct, uh, third cousin. So he was part, so when we, when we identified the common ancestors in Lisa's case, we had this woman called Marie Jo Lynn. And, you know, as I said, we, when we've got the common ancestor, we then build down all the descendant lines. Mm. She had 14 children. Yeah, it's a lot of kids, (laughs) a lot of kids. So being able to identify who Adam was helped us then ruling out one of those lines. So, and you didn't know, Lisa, you didn't have any, didn't know anything about this connection before she put the pieces together, correct? Uh, No, no, I did not. I started doing um, uh, a test for DNA for my birthday, for my 40th birthday, Yeah, uh, because I was adopted and I thought, now is the time to start doing some research. And um, Barbara messaged me through the DNA site. And uh, after some skepticism on my part, uh, we connected a little better. And uh, uh, the results are, are pretty incredible for, for me and eventually for Lisa as well. So you got to meet Lisa? And- I have not, no. Oh, are, are we, you going to? Are you? I, I would love exchanging to. letters. I, I, owe, I owe I owe her a huge thank you. I did uh, uh, I did send her a message. We did chat um, through Facebook Messenger before before the connection was made to the Bear Brook murders. Because yeah. once that happened, I think she went uh, mm-hmm. private. Uh, she did not want to be known to it's... people, and so we had had conversations online until that point. How does it feel for you knowing that you've got this vague connection to something that that was awful? Uh, it's it's kind of a it's a hard emotion to describe. I mean, being an adoptee and finding your birth family is by itself an emotion that most people don't experience. Um, but then to know that it, uh, to know how this came about mm-hmm. is just a uh, it's very strange. And I always I always tell people that it's. Um, it's something that's very sad and tragic for another person, uh, but their story has resulted in something very positive and joyful for me. 
so that it's a very strange emotion to feel. Um, but uh, I'm very grateful to Barbara and Lisa. So it's better to know than to not know. Uh, for me, and I think for a lot of people, probably it is. I think um, as an adoptee, you know, you go your however long in your life just having this this hole in your story, and you just you just don't know. You go through school, and people talk about ethnicity or medical history or whatever it is, and you just don't know. And so, I, and I think and you think about in the case of Lisa, like she didn't know her birthday or where she was born. I mean, that her name, like there's even further holes in her story. And so I do think there is a positive outcome because that, that individual, myself included, is you're getting, you're getting answers. How did your adoptive family feel about getting this information? Uh, my adoptive family was very supportive and they, they helped. Uh, when I told them that I wanted to start searching, um, they gave me the, uh, name of the adoption agency who I initially contacted. And, you know, I was born in California, so I was entitled to some information. And then uh, after I had connected with Barbara, I was able to give that information to them as well. And that's how they were able to match, um, uh, help match and realize where I was born and how old my mother might be. And so. It's very bit of a, a very odd matchmaker. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the other thing that's really interesting about Adam's story, actually, is that he and Lisa had some of the biggest matches. They shared them. And one of the things they share is their French-Canadian ancestry, which, of course, mm. you didn't know you were French-Canadian ancestry. Um, but what was a huge difference was because we knew where he was born and about when, um, as, as compared to Lisa, who we knew nothing about. So we knew he's born in California. We've got a birth date. And so we go through looking for the people who were the right relationship based on the amount of DNA. For Adam, there's one family in California that came up and they had four sons. And so one of those four sons is Adam's father. Ah, did he turn out to be a king of Borneo or something? Or? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, unfortunately, if, I, I, I just started reading the book as I was sitting here and uh, Barbara explains a lot of it, but you know, I think one of the obstacles is you came across, it was just like one problem after another. And there was a lot of issues with those four brothers and being past criminals and not wanting to be involved. And so uh, that was an obstacle at the time. But uh, yeah, since then I've, I've not been able to, I think I know who my father is because I know it's one of the two brothers. Um, I know the oldest brother did the test and the youngest brother was too young to be my father. And I've actually met the youngest brother. Um, was that a nice one of, meeting? It's one of the two in the middle that's my father. So. <laughs> was that a nice meeting with the youngest brother? Yeah. Again, it's just uh, getting getting answers to the, the holes in my story. And yeah. I don't I don't have quite the full story because, uh, you know, that, that part of their family is very complicated. But um, right. at least I have something. So, yeah. That that's that's lovely. I'm very glad. And th thank you very much for sharing this. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and thank you, Adam. Let's see. First question here. Um, catching criminals can be scary. Do you ever fear for your own safety? Though uh, so that's an interesting question. Uh, I actually, after I identified uh, who the Golden State Killer was, I actually asked to remain anonymous. And I was anonymous for several months. And then, uh, oh, actually, uh, uh, the, uh, I'm asked to, we will be going, let's see, uh, please use the question cards in your seat or the YouTube text chat. I think you can still add some questions into this whole lineup here. But um, so you were anonymous, and how did you become unanonymous? So um, the deputy in San Bernardino, Deputy Headley, um, he was watching a show where somebody who had not been involved with solving the case um, had claimed that they had been involved. Uh, and so he as got, happens. He, he, yes. he got a little ticked off, and so he called me and said, you're coming out. <laughs> uh. So he contacted Paul Holst, and Paul Holst did a tweet saying that I was the one who'd been the genealogist. Well, so as a result of that tweet, were you suddenly sworn with guys like me, reporters calling you <laughs> and bugging you? And 
Yeah, and I became a unsung, unsung, unsung hero mm. on Twitter. Yeah. 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 Was that nice at first, or was it because there was it was a lot of attention came your way? Well, was, there were, there were a couple of things that actually happened. I mean, initially I was the only one who was doing anything, and then there were three other people who became involved in doing IgG. And they were much more flamboyant people than I was. I'm kind of shy. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, they stuck out a lot more than I did. So it, it was not so bad anymore. I have to say, as a reporter, being a little shy makes you a better interview because you're <laughs> a little more direct. Um, it, at what point did you, were you able to kind of crimp that off again and, and become less swarmed? I don't think it's really changed that much. I still get a fair amount of unsolicited emails asking for interviews, presentations, what have you. So it's still a lot out there. And of course, every time I do something, then of course it starts it up again. Sure. So do you try to keep it kind of at a low? Yeah, I, I don't do, a, I don't accept a lot of them. So mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And has that worked? Do you feel safer or better? Yeah. Or is, No, I feel, is yeah, good I feel good. Yeah. Okay. Do you, did you have to get security or? I increased the security of my home and things like that. I've mm -hmm. I've had many people urging me to get a gun. I've always been very anti-gun, so that one's been kind of not something I've acted on yet. So we'll yeah. see. Well, I hope it stays nice and safe. Uh, uh, there's another one about uh, did you ever worry about your own safety when you decided to identify serial killers? Because that's a special brand of of uh, of killer. Yeah, and I've had, had several of those. Um, yeah, I'm not sure that they're necessarily any worse than any of the others. Yeah, death is death is death, isn't it? And, some, and some of them are pretty horrific, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. With advancing technology and, uh, uh, let's see, ever-growing public genetic databases, where do you see this field going in 10 to 20 years? What I hope to see is more like what was done with the Idaho case, where it's actually used on current cases. Talk a little more, more about that. So up until now, most of the cases that IgG is used for are cold cases. And there, of course, are lots of issues with working on cold cases. Mm. Um, you know, anything from, uh, from people who's, who might be witnesses in the case or be able to give information are either dead or they've forgotten or whatever. Um, whereas with... And of course, things can happen to the DNA. It can have been stored badly. There can be all kinds of things that have gone wrong there. So working on current cases would be really good. And I'm hoping that, that we'll see more of that. And what was the hit they got in, the, uh, in Idaho? That was a pretty direct uh, tool, wasn't it? They used IgG. Mm -hmm. So they, yeah, there was a blood drop on the uh, knife sheath, is I believe what it was. And so they were able to use IgG to um, zero in on a name. And just one little drop. One little drop. Doesn't need much. You need a hazmat suit these days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, people see TV and they think that criminals can be, uh, you know, super sophisticated. I, I don't know. I, I think a lot of criminals are pretty sloppy, mm -hmm. um, fortunately. Well, they don't necessarily mean to be. But, I mean, if you think about it for the Idaho case, you've got somebody killing four people um, with a knife. The chances are he's going to injure himself at some point yeah 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 particularly with knives mm -hmm. with knife cases um let's see what is the most common misconception about dna and solving cold cases that you found to be true i think the question that i get asked most is how did you get a hold of so-and-so's dna so somebody in the tree yeah. They don't understand that the, the, the people in the tree came from census records and Facebook and wherever else. I don't have their DNA. I just have the DNA of the criminal. Mm -hmm. And then because uh, uh, there seems to be this uh, impression that you get the DNA and then like a 25-minute you know, uh, too, watching TV too much episode. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to go. This stuff, it, it's it's... It's uh, it's meticulous. It can be boring. It's it's uh, well, I I can find it boring going through a lot of different records, but it it's a bit of a slog, isn't it? Figuring this out. You know, it it isn't really. It's very addictive. 
because you know you you know you're hot on the trail <clears throat> and you just know if you keep going a little bit longer you're going to find the connections you're looking for you're the right person for the job because <laughs> it, it takes a long time i, I yeah uh let's see uh oh does your work overlap with the book research by Michelle McNamara? No, it doesn't. And but there's. But let's there's, say who she is. If so, you so Michelle McNamara wrote a book called Gone in the Dark, um, and it was about. She was a journalist, and it was about some of the her observations from working with Paul Holes. So there wasn't anything in her book that actually helped us solve the case, but what she did do. Um, and this is huge, is she kept the case alive. And mm. so when somebody like me then came along um, who did have the tools to be able to solve the case, it was still active. Um, and that's true for a lot of cases the, uh, that I talk about in the book, actually, are there was a detective who kept the case alive. Um, there's one that I talk about. It's called The, the Billboard Boy. Mm. And the detective in that case, that was, I think, a 30, 20 or 30-year-old cold case. The detective in that case, he kept the, the file with all the evidence in it right, right beside his desk so that he would fall over it every day. Yeah. And so it's, it's the keeping the case alive, which is important. And so that's what Michelle did for the Golden State Killer. Yeah, and you need a, yeah. yeah I found that with the, with the Doodler case that I, mm -hmm. that I don't know if people are really familiar with it. It was one cold case cop who decided to, to, to revive this. Because mm -hmm. these things can slip away. I, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And isn't it true that about half murder cases in most jurisdictions don't get solved? Uh, I actually don't know what the st statistics are on that, but that I mean, sounds about right. Yeah, it's huge. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, how would you decide how to pluck one up out of the mitts and, uh, and, and go working on it? Well, I actually don't have to do that. I just get emails and phone calls, you know, asking me to work on a particular case, so I work on it. Do you turn any down? Nope. Really? They've returned one down. And how many folks do you have working with you, with your organization? So um, our little group is Firebird Forensics, and there are about 15 of us. That's a lot. Yeah. Is everyone volunteer or salaried? So we, the we theoretically get paid. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> Freelance. <laughs> <laughs> um, what we do is, though, is we cap our fees for law enforcement because these cases, you can solve a case in 24 hours or less, or it might take you three years. Yeah. And so you can't really charge for the three years. So we have, we have a cap on our fees. So most of what we do is, is volunteer pro bono. Yeah. That's really nice. And it's, yeah. How hard was it to write this book? Are, have you written anything before? No, and, and I didn't write this. I had a ghostwriter. Yeah. I mean, I had to... <laughs> had a, there's a lot of you in there. You had to <laughs> he, sit with them at least. He, he, he did a very good job. He was actually in New York. We never met because we started right after the pandemic. Yeah. And so we used to just spend time on the phone. And so how did that did, work? He did a pretty good job. I think he did manage to channel me pretty well. So, so you told him or did you write things, notes, no, send he, in notes? We just, he just interviewed me. Just sort of like what you're doing right now. We would talk about cases, really? and yeah, and he would take notes. That's a lot of. And, and then he he then interviewed you know various of the detectives. So he talked to um, Tim Horn, who was the Billboard Boy detective. He talked uh, to Pete Headley. He talked to you know all of these different folks. Well, that's nice. And then you narrated the audio. I narrated, book, right? Yeah, right. So you get my Kiwi accent. <laughs> that's right. I, I think most people might not know you grew up in New Zealand. Well, what kind of child were you that grew into this, you know, private detective? What, what did you do as a little kid? Well, I sort of talked about that a little bit. Uh, I collected bugs. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> Ugly bugs. Um, I think more to scare other people than anything else. <laughs> and in New Zealand, they, they, they don't have bad bugs, only fun bugs, right? We don't, yeah, there's, there's, there's one poisonous spider, and that's it. It's in the uh, whole country. In the whole country. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And we don't have, there are, you know, there's no no snakes. There's nothing like that. So, yeah. Yeah, I remember Bo Derek once bought a snake in there and they put her in jail or something. It's, it was a national scandal. <laughs> no snakes. What part of New Zealand did you grow up in? I grew up in Auckland, mm. which at the moment is apparently inundated. Uh, 
It's the isn't it the biggest city in the in the country? Up it on is. The north? Yeah. Right. Yeah. They did. So why did you leave New Zealand and come wind up over here? Uh, I married somebody from California. <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> uh, did, did you ever want to go back and live in New Zealand again? Um, well, unfortunately, my my son and daughter-in-law live here, so. Uh, well, there you go. Makes it hard, yeah. Uh, um, there's another question. Do we have any more questions from the audience? How long did it take from first being contacted regarding the Golden Gate killer to identifying? So we were actually contact. I was actually contacted. Um, well, originally in, in I think it was March of 2017. Um, we didn't actually get started on working on the case though until October. Um, and then, of course, as you've heard, we then had the saga of trying to find some DNA. So it took us until February to actually get a, um, a DNA extract and a DNA profile that we could upload to this site that I've been mentioning, GEDmatch. Once we uploaded to GEDmatch, it took us 63 days to solve the case. Hmm. And, and I believe you've, you've said in the, in the book, you, you were working what, 12, 14 hour days? Oh, yeah, we, we, <laughs> what? yeah, it's, it's a little, little misleading to say it took 63 days because there were six of us basically working around the clock um, because Paul Holes was going to be retiring. And so we were trying very hard to, oh, to yeah. solve the case before he retired. I think we missed by like three days. Really? He wasn't going to just push it off while you were doing the research? <laughs> no, I mean, I guess he'd already done whatever and he was moving and yeah. No kidding. What did, what did you eat in your, were you just all junk food or did you take breaks? What? No, I, I actually, I'm somebody who likes to cook. And so actually I, I do cook good stuff for myself. Yeah. Yeah. How did you keep yourself up? That's, that's a long day or day after day after day. Did you take a day off now and then? Um, sure. Um, but not, not a lot. Um, what I would end up, I mean, I, I do play tennis. Um, and so I would still you know, try to keep up with my regular tennis games and stuff like that. The problem is when you get into working on stuff is, you know, you're so engrossed in it, you sort of time disappears. And so I would have to set alarms for myself to, to remember, remind me that, you know, I had a dental appointment or I had to go play tennis. Or alarms whatever. for yourself to remind you to eat and go and play that tennis? Too, and that too, actually, yeah. No kidding. How, how much sleep are you getting every night? Enough or just enough? Enough. I'm, I'm very much a night owl, so... Yeah. Um, yeah, I, and and actually, I've many times pulled all lighters because I'll get started on something and I'll know I've almost got this person, and so I just have to keep going. Are you a coffee and chocolate kind of person to keep I, yourself perked? I, I, well, definitely the coffee. Um, mm. I love chocolate, but I try not to eat too much of it. Yeah, I guess it pipes you up, but then you crash. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we're out of time. I'm, uh, my just a, just a follow up to that. What was the yes. Most, uh, the case with maybe the most distant relative that you built the family tree on, like a third, fourth cousin or something? Well, at the time, it was actually the Golden State Killer. But since then, we've actually had a couple of, of cases where it's been a little, we've solved. So the Golden State Killer, um, the, high, the biggest matches we had when we first uploaded it was 62 Cinemorgans and I think it was 56 or something like that. We've since then, so that's about a third or a fourth cousin. Um, since then, we've actually solved a couple of cases using new tools. Um, with down, um, I think one of them was the biggest match was like 42. Um, and I think we've had another one that was like 35. Um, but it's using, it, using the tool that I mentioned, Watto, which you know helps us figure out where somebody belongs in the tree. But we also, and I, I do talk about this a little bit in the book, is um, we use mind mapping tools uh, like scaffolds and uh, lucid chart. Because when you're building a tree in, in Ancestry, you can't necessarily see the connections amongst the trees. So when you use one of these mind mapping tools, you can suddenly put in, in a different format um, ways to see how trees might connect, particularly when you've got small matches, you're probably going to be wanting to join two trees with a marriage. And so you're going to have, um, what you end up with is what we call the golden arches. So you'll end up with 
going back to a, a most recent comment and sister for this tree, another one for this one, and then you've got the connector. And so what you know is your matches match with both sets. So that means that the person you're looking for has to be in the middle somewhere so that they can connect to both sets. And so it's huge. And despite the, the, the privacy concerns, there's still a good, rich pool of genealogy to tap. tap. Isn't that correct? Yeah, it, hasn't, it has actually not surprisingly been hurt that much. Mm. Um, we would like more people to be opting in. So GEDmatch requires people to affirmatively opt in to, to law enforcement matching. So obviously we would like more people to do that. Mm. Um, but... Even so, we're still, we're still able to, to do stuff even with small matches just because the new tools are so helpful. That's good. Was there one more out here? Oh, yes, sir, in the front. I was just wondering how criminal defense attorneys have reacted in any particular way to genealogical DNA evidence. I'm sorry, say that one more time, please. How criminal defense attorneys, have they reacted in any particular way to the use of genealogical DNA evidence? Oh, have they objected? Correct. So that's an interesting question, because what we've done in California is that there was a memorandum of understanding that was signed by, I think, most of the district attorneys in California to treat IgG as being an investigative tool. So um, the, the evidence actually doesn't ever really get taken into court. Um, because what we've done is, as I described with GSK, I've identified who I think it is. Law enforcement takes that information. They get surreptitious DNA from the suspect. They compare that then to what's in CODIS. And, you know, the odds come back. It's a gazillion to one. It can't be anybody else. And he's arrested. They then retest him. It matches with the crime scene DNA. There's really not a lot for a defense attorney to do. You don't have to worry yeah. about some client objecting and right. doing all sorts of aggressive things. So it never gets to court, really, in court. Oh, that's the no. oh. Well, we're talking about California. Other states may do it differently. Yeah. 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 Well, I think, am I uh, right? We're done? I th <laughs> thank you very much. We've reached the end of the program. Appreciate you all coming here. And thank you, Barbara, for sharing this with us. It's, it's, it's a rare inside look to how this is working. Very much appreciate that. Well, thank you. Thank you for your questions. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.